The Kubernetes ecosystem consists of enterprises, vendors, open source projects, and individual engineers. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation was created to balance the interests of all the different groups within the Cloud Native community. CNCF has similarities to the Linux Foundation and the Apache Foundation. CNCF helps to guide open source projects within the Kubernetes ecosystem, including Prometheus, FluentD, and Envoy. With the help of the CNCF, these projects can find common ground where possible. KubeCon is a conference organized by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. I attended the most recent KubeCon in Copenhagen. KubeCon was a remarkably well-run conference, and the attendees were excited and optimistic. As much traction as Kubernetes has, it still is very early days, and it was fun to talk to people and forecast what the future might bring. Two of the people I talked to were Chris Anacek and Dan Kahn, who are the COO and director, respectively, of the CNCF. I was curious about how to scale an organization like the CNCF. In some ways, it's like scaling a government. Kubernetes is growing faster than Linux grew, and the applications of Kubernetes are as numerous as those of Linux. Different constituencies want different things out of Kubernetes. And as those constituencies rapidly grow in number, how do you maintain diplomacy among competing interests? It's not an easy task, and that diplomacy has been established by keeping in mind lessons from previous open source projects. I enjoy these conversations with Chris and Dan, and I hope you enjoy them too. Chris Anacek, you're the COO of the CNCF. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. You've been involved in a series of open source communities, most notably Linux and CNCF. How does the Kubernetes community compare to previous open source communities? That's an interesting question. So in terms of growth, you know, we sometimes have the, we affectionately call Kubernetes the Linux of the cloud, right? And if you kind of saw some of the research we've done in CNCF regarding velocity of open source projects, Kubernetes comes fairly close to Linux in terms of speed and so on in terms of like pull requests coming in, right? So it ranks, I think, number two behind Linux in, in throughput. So in terms of communities, you know, uh, everyone uses different tools. You know, Linux is still old school, Git format patch, mailing, like, you know, LKML is just like a bunch of patches flying through the mailing list. Kubernetes uses more modern tools. They have, you know, stretching GitHub to the limit. So it's... Uh, yeah, Which I, also I, happened with Linux. Yeah. Uh, well, they it, didn't even go on GitHub, I guess. No, uh, Linus is explicitly anti-GitHub, uh, or at least if he's, he's quoted to be anti-GitHub. But even so. if he wanted to be, GitHub wouldn't work for, for Linux, right? It's a different workflow. Even the Kubernetes community has uh, complaints around scaling out GitHub for its use cases, right? So they've even used kind of, they built third-party tools to help deal with the review backlog. And there's actually even startups out there like reviewable.io, which is basically helping projects that deal with just like, like what happens when you have thousands of pull requests? How do you know, you know, what ones you've looked at, what you haven't? And so Reviewable.io is pretty cool. Highly recommend people check them out in terms of what they're is doing. Is that the Code Review as a service company? The, kind of. It's It connects directly to GitHub and basically gives your 
you a nice view of your backlog of reviews. And also it knows which ones you've looked at last. And it kind of tracks that where GitHub doesn't has no concept of that. So it gives you a better interface for, for review backlog. And the Kubernetes community still, still uses it. So you're the COO of all this madness and the chief operating officer at any company. As the company scales, the chief operating officer basically has to change their role every other week and do more things or do different things or delegate things. So how has that changed over time? I mean, when I started CNCF, I was the founding executive director. Then, uh, you know, we were like 28 or so members at that time in two and a half, a little over two and a half years. We've grown as an organization. So CNCF, I think now has 23 employees covering marketing, PR, developer advocacy, technical writing, you know, events, a mix of everything. And so, you know, I've shifted from executive director to COO, now managing a bunch of aspects. So it's all over. Like at the end of the day, we, the the whole goal of CNCF is to basically support our projects, right? You know, essentially we're in service to our projects and whatever their needs are, like we'll do best to accommodate that, whether it's a, you know, new website, some projects wanted security audits recently. So we're like, cool, like we'll go figure out how to do like third-party security audits to to improve your security processes and so on. So we just react on the needs of our projects and and members essentially. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been all over it. It's kind of, you know, it's funny. I swear to myself that I would never do like another startup because before, Joining CNCF, I spent five years at Twitter and was there, you know, super early. Whereas I was a hundred or so engineers before, and when I left, it was two thousand. After about five years, I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to do that like crazy startup experience again. And then, oh, CNCF, you know, looks pretty good, like nice little not-for-profit foundation, and you know, we've grown from you know thirty or so members to two hundred and sixteen as of today, in about a little over two and a half years. So it's just been bonkers in terms of membership growth, and even from a staff, we went from one to about twenty twenty-four in two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So there are open source projects that get really big and then have organizational issues that end up or adoption issues or just market issues that end up making the open source project less successful than it could have been. What are the ways that you or what are the things that you've learned from seeing previous open source projects and how are you avoiding that kind of problem? When we started CNCF, we looked at other kind of open source foundations and projects and tried to take in some lessons from them of like, how can we actually build something that could learn from other people's mistakes and lessons? So a couple of things was, if you look at things like the Apache Foundation arguably has lots of great you know projects out there. They have something called the Apache Way. Like every project fo- is intended to follow the Apache Way, share the processes, governance, so on. With CNCF, we decided that, that that's kind of limited because each project definitely has different scope, different velocity, like you know different levels of commitment. So we went with the like bring your own governance approach. As long as you publicly document how your decisions are made and how like maintainers are elected for projects, we don't necessarily care. And and so it was an interesting idea, but we thought that in theory, like if we allowed projects to be a little more flexible, they're not going to feel like bounded by what people consider. Sometimes people are like, oh, Apache's like heavyweight. So we didn't want to have that like mantra of like, there's a lot of these heavyweight processes where most of the projects that we're taking into CNCF already were fairly functional. They just didn't maybe have their governance defined in a way that, you know, was public and transparent and made sense. So other people could join the project. And what about testing? Because Dan was talking about testing yesterday. Yes. <laughs> so do you 
enforce some kind of testing policy? No. So the other lesson is other foundations out there, like either Eclipse or OpenStack, sometimes they do like annual releases, like, hey, let's get all of our projects to release at the same time. We're all going to test them together. We've opted not to do that. All of our projects are kind of like independently run. They define their own governance, how they run their tests and so on. What CNCF does as a service is if you go to a cncf.ci, we have a public system out there that will take our projects, test them on all the different cloud providers out there, both public and bare metal. So like AWS, Azure, OpenStack, you know, bare metal, you know, cloud providers pack it on bare metal and just run a battery of, of tests and see if it works. So we offer that as a service, but that's not a blocking thing for projects. Like they are not going to like not be able to do pull requests because their tests are failing on one cloud. So we do it as an awareness thing. We don't want to be like a gate. We just want to provide them information to see that, hmm, maybe our stuff's not working on one cloud. Why is that? We should fix that um, because that test is particularly red. But it's a really cool website. Highly Go to CNCFCI, check it out. It's a, it's a, fun, a fun project. At this point, I have a pretty good understanding of the ways in which the CNCF is similar to a startup. What are the ways in which it is very unlike a startup? We are a nonprofit. Like everything gets reinvested into our projects, well, right? Sure. Yeah. Organizationally, organizationally. We generally don't have, we don't necessarily have a full-blown engineering team. So like we're, we're not going to do the work that we expect our members and projects to do. What we focus on instead is things that are kind of additive and, you know, assist uh, projects to become easier for people to contribute to or consume. And so what that means is what do engineers typically don't, what they not like to do? Writing, documentation, website work, design work. So CNCF has staff that helps this for projects, right? So like we have a team of technical writers that will go out and improve our projects, you know, documentation, We've got designers to help with like, you know, website work and, and, and so on. So we help with that type of work that just makes it easier for projects to be consumed and used, but we don't actually have staff full time that is like working on like feature work for these projects. Hmm, makes and was, sense. And yeah, and it's and also it would just be hard for us to compete with our members for talent, which is the other you know type of problem. So speaking of that, diplomacy is a huge aspect of your role. So you are managing diplomacy between these yeah. giant cloud providers, or maybe putting up policies within the CNCF such that you are not required to do diplomacy, like just saying, you know, we just don't do that. We do not comment on that. You know, you you pay us money as sponsors. You know, we give you a booth at the expo, but... What's the diplomacy I, side so, of things? So I kind of see it like, you know, we're, it's kind of like sports, right? Let's take like, you know, soccer, for example, where, you know, the teams are essentially the member companies all competing with each other <laughs> and we're essentially <laughs> acting as uh, referees. So like, you know, if someone, you know, jabs someone, like we call that out and do like, you know, red flag or, you know, you know, red card uh, that, you know, that that is not allowed by the rules. So our, our, our job is basically to ensure that things are neutral and, you know, companies are playing by the rules because they all signed up. There's a charter that dictates the values and rules of the organization that everyone's expected to follow. And we act as essentially referees to enforce you know, those rules amongst our, amongst our members. Has that charter had to be tweaked over time? It's so in the formation and bootstrapping phase of the foundation, it took a long time to get done because anytime you're trying to build consensus with a large group of people, it, it, it takes a while. Um, we have made some small updates over time just to like fix small issues. Nothing's perfect, right? And uh, But it's probably had two or three minor updates. But in general, like the mission, the values have stayed fairly consistent. We are going through a fun process of updating the definition of what cloud native is, which is baked into the charter. And that's been kind of a fun 
fun. I don't want to say bike shedding process, but it's it's it, it takes a while when you when when everyone's offered their opinion and you need to come to consensus. These things sometimes sometimes take a while. So I've obviously heard the phrase that the goal right now is for Kubernetes to become boring, but boring in a good way because Linux is boring. People know what they're going to get from it. So people use the word boring, but I think just like like mature, like, you know, like something that is stable, you know, rock solid. I don't think necessarily the technology will become boring. It's just going to become something stable and mature that's there. So it's kind of... Linux is everywhere, right? And people tend to forsake that a little bit, that it's it's grown so much that it's literally in like almost every device we use. It's in fridges, TVs, and people didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. We essentially want Kubernetes to be something similar where it kind of falls behind the scenes where every cloud, whether it's public or private, essentially has the Kubernetes API there and Kubernetes sitting there. So essentially from an engineering point of view, I kind of like, like POSIX. POSIX is something people, you know, kind of take, you know, for granted. Kubernetes essentially will become like a distributed you know, API version mm-hmm. of POSIX. So and any, what happens after that? After Kubernetes is boring, yeah. then it seems like there's room for a lot of exciting stuff. So all the fun stuff, now that we standardize on a way to do like distributed development across different clouds, now we could kind of build tools and users out there could potentially have more portable applications because, you know, who wants to be locked into like one cloud service or, you know, provider? It's just not healthy for you it will, it will kill your ability to innovate because what you end up on what you want to end up seeing is all the different cloud providers and services there compete on an even playing field and continuing to better and improve things and you have the option to move to whichever one best suits your needs as as a business and cncf and the whole cloud na- native movement in general wants to enable that essentially we want to enable a multi-cloud world that you know is fair and and you know workloads are more portable amongst and do you have any more of like futuristic projections because that's very exciting yeah. i agree but i asked brendan burns this question yeah. he was telling me that he saw a world in which you could have a return to this static binary that you purchase just like you used to buy a, yeah. a box of software off the shelf except this time you're buying a distributed system off the shelf and you can just go and install it on any cloud provider you want yeah i mean that would be interesting like you know what interests me in like kind of future directions i would be fascinating to see like if we get to a point where you kind of have the standard distributed api every Everywhere, and you're essentially saying you could put constraints on a workload, right? You could be saying like, for this particular workload, I want this workload to be completed as fast as possible and money is no object right. and, and just like go, right? And then, you know, there'll be maybe a broker that, you know, goes say like, all right, we got this workload come in, come in, like, you know, here's their kind of constraints. And then like maybe cloud providers or people bid on that kind of it's like almost like high frequency trading, right? And in, in, in like a Ethereum. way, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, guess, like, uh, I want to avoid any like blockchain related topics but you know kind of like how high frequency trading works yeah like we may move to a model where there's actually brokers where we'll you know they'll essentially act as middlemen to compete for workloads so fascinating yeah i think that'll happen but just a couple more questions so is the cncf involved in the kubernetes conformance project yeah, yeah so we basically host the conformance efforts and so this is like how a cloud provider builds a standard conformant form of Correct. Kubernetes so that every cloud provider has some compatibility Correct. So layer. we, uh, it's a working group under the auspices of CNCF uh, that is that has the Kubernetes you know community involved in it, right? And so we've helped basically guide the process and enforce the rules that we came up to make that happen. So essentially, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. Like it all lives on GitHub. So if you go to GitHub.com slash CNCF slash K8S-conformance, you go there, like the tools to do run the tests are all there. All the tests that we go define of what it means to be a Kubernetes certified thing 
are all there and documented and everyone's open to kind of contribute to it and say like, oh, maybe we should add more tests right to it. Or this test is, is a bad one so we can improve it. But it's all there and you could actually see all the different cloud providers and startups that are doing cool things submit kind of their test results in real time and kind of see, oh, you know, great. Look, like EKS maybe just certified the 110 version of Kubernetes. So it's all public and transparent, which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So last question, yeah. I was doing a lot of reporting around the time of the cold container orchestration wars <laughs> and that was around when you were you were getting involved with the, in the OCI so around yeah, that I am, time. I'm still uh, executive director of OCI. I, I just I literally uh, just before this I was at an OCI uh, face-to-face meeting. So. Yeah. So what are your takeaways from that period of time, that arduous uh, container orchestration uh, oh my period gosh. of time. Like, yeah, container wars to orchestration wars to back to container wars again with a different kind of runtimes vying for being the de facto way Kubernetes runs workloads. It's just fascinating. So, you know, like Red Hat's investing a lot in Creo, Docker as Container D, Google just announced you. It's just, it's just fascinating to see this. So, o- what OCI solved, in my opinion, was it got everyone in the room together and said that, like, look, this stuff has to be done in a kind of. S- we need to spec out what a container runtime is, what an image is. We don't want to compete at that level. It's super silly to compete on how containers are actually defined and laid out on disk. There should just be one way. Like if, if you essentially use a service and you build your container, you deploy it to you know the cloud of your choice, and then you're like, this is not good enough for me. I want to move to another one. For you to like go back and have to rebuild everything just so you can move to another service is absolutely insane, right? And so OCI basically helped prevent that issue and get the whole industry on board on specking out what essentially, you know, kudos to Docker and, you know, a lot of stuff came from their technology and, you know, specked it out and say, this is, this is the standard. It also helped neutralize patents in play. A lot of people don't realize, you know, a lot of standards body have IPR agreements that all the members agree to saying that, you know what, you know, we're going to forego any patents and not sue each other in, in this space. So when OCI hit 1.0, there was an IPR agreement that said like anyone that is using an implementation of OCI kind of foregoes the ability to kind of sue related to patents to that specific oh, implementation. Awesome. So it kind of neutralized things. It's, it was kind of a small thing to happen behind the scenes that really kind of helped, wow. you know, things not turn oh, into I a crazy. Realize that yeah. side of it. Yeah. Well, Chris Anacek, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Be great to talk again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. I'm here with Dan Kahn, who's the director of the CNCF, and we're at KubeCon. Dan, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Glad to be here. So I want to start off by talking about serverless, because I've been having a lot of conversations in the hallways around serverless and how that intersects with the Kubernetes community. Why is serverless important to the Kubernetes community? I think so serverless, which is best known for AWS Lambda, has gotten a ton of people excited because it's legitimately exciting. It's it's a way of deploying apps that seems just easier, breaking them up than things like the millisecond billing and infinite scalability. And so what it's shown is different ways of working with computing that can just seem so much more pleasant and fast, higher velocity than what people use today. And so one of the things that we've been thrilled to see, and I love the fact that Kelsey did this demo at the end of the day, Wednesday, he originally, this is his third KubeCon that he's co-chairing and and lasts for a while. And he originally wasn't sure he was going to do a demo, but he was excited enough about this cloud events work that's come out of the CNCF serverless working group that he decided to get up and demo it. And so what's been fun is to see that you can actually 
decompose some of those ideas that people are so excited about from AWS Lambda and then use them in different ways on other cloud providers and also on top of Kubernetes. And one question is, if you're going to build a serverless-like platform on top of Kubernetes so that anybody that deploys a Kubernetes cluster can have serverless functionality on top of their Kubernetes resource scheduling, should that serverless functionality be bundled into Kubernetes or should it be a world of letting a thousand flowers bloom and having all these different serverless projects that people could deploy to Kubernetes? Does it make sense to have an opinionated way to do serverless computing within Kubernetes? Almost certainly not. So the Kubernetes community is pretty clear about wanting to have Kubernetes do less and they're trying to take as much code out of the project as they can. So there's a, a pretty active effort to try and strip out all the code from the different cloud providers and put those into separate repos so that Google and IBM and uh, each of them don't need to make changes to the core Kubernetes in order to fix provider-specific bugs. And so by far the biggest strength of Kubernetes, excuse me, in my mind, is the APIs are well-regarded and, and have pretty clean interface points. And so it's designed as a system that you can build on top of. Now, within CNCF, I think it would make a ton of sense for some serverless projects to come in, one or more. And it's not clear yet, but there's definitely, I mean, I think at least four of them are presenting here at KubeCon Cloud NativeCon. Kubeless, OpenFAS, Fission, and Nucleo, and I believe there's some others as well. And with the serverless working group, we created this serverless landscape, and you can see it at s.cncf.io, and then there's a link to the static version of it. And you can see that there's a lot of different options out there. But so my expectation is that they're going to build on top of Kubernetes, but that they would remain separate projects. And serverless is appealing to me as somebody who reports on different engineering subjects because there's a lot of scheduling going on. When you spin up a serverless function, it's going to get scheduled against some opaque blob of computing, and you should be able to either say, I just want that to be scheduled and I don't really care, or you should be able to tune that scheduler how you want, which is why there's a lot of subjectivity around who builds what serverless computing framework. And I think something similar could be said about machine learning, where you have these varietal workloads. And I believe that there's some keynote talks this morning about machine learning. Are there going to be similar questions related to the ML scheduling side of things that are being asked around the serverless scheduling side of things? I think if I had more time with a whiteboard, the one behind you, we could come up with some clever two-dimensional diagram. And so there's at one dimension at least is how long a function is designed to last. And so serverless is the sort of classic example where I want to resize a ping. And so, you know, I should be able to do it in a hundredth of a second or something. And But if, if people upload a, a million of them, I'd like to be able to do them all on different machines and then spin down and such. And then, so at, at least one axis of that is how long it lives. I think most ML workloads tend to have a much longer cycle that, that they want to keep living for a long time, or at least uh, the training piece of it needs to keep going for a longer time, and then maybe the classification piece can be much faster. And so I, I certainly would say that the aspiration of Kubernetes and the, the platform that we're building is that it should support all of those workflows. And 
I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it, it already does. So I think there's still optimizations and tweaks and such. But in Austin, five months ago, there was a, a pretty cool demo from a company, BlackRock, that was showing Kubeless, one of these offerings, running on top of Kubernetes, and that they were using that in production today. And you can say, oh, well, why wouldn't any company just use AWS or Google Functions or, or one of these others? But uh, BlackRock doesn't want to use the public cloud for its uh, internal data. And so it is pretty great that they're, now they're obviously big enough, that it's pretty, but it's pretty great that they are able to get the same functionality on their own. And uh, they're also looking at all the ML kind of things. And so the f- idea that the same servers, the same resources can be scheduling all of this in an optimal way. But the point, once again, is that this is not really something that the core Kubernetes team needs to think about as much as just their basic primitives of creating resources and scheduling those resources. They should not be thinking about, are we building resource scheduling capacity for serverless or for regular enterprises or for machine learning, cutting edge stuff, that stuff is not in their purview, right? I mean, I think in reality, when you get to any sort of edge case, then you need to look at, oh, are there tweaks or optimizations that are necessary? So the obvious one for serverless is that it does take Kubernetes a little bit of time to spin up a new container. And interestingly, AWS Lambda is also a container-based system, and it takes them a little bit of time to spin up a container. And so they have some tricks around warm start and hot start containers, and you can do the same thing with Kubernetes, uh, or similar things with Kubernetes. And so as of this moment, I don't think there's any primitives missing. I think it is possible with the Kubernetes API, but it's quite likely that you need this custom resource descriptor CRD or other additional code. And I mean, it's early days on this stuff. So there's just a lot of innovation going on. What's nice is that if it turns out that there is an API missing, or one that's suboptimal or stuff, there's a whole process in place that you could you could create patches and, and get that contributed over time. So that cold start, hot start problem stuff, I've talked to different serverless people about this problem. Is that something where if you were running a serverless function, you would want to have something in place at a lower level of Kubernetes that actually does is aware of the fact that this is a serverless function, you're solving for the cold start problem? Or is solving for the cold start problem a more general case that you would want to be solved for all containers that would be spun up on Kubernetes. I, I think it's the latter. Where okay. I mean, the simplest way to think of yeah. warm start is just, are you willing to dedicate a small amount of resources to having this function in memory and ready to go so that you really can get, you know, sub-millisecond response time the first few times you do it? So it's it's a set of trade-offs and knobs. But my understanding as of today is that all the knobs are currently there. We saw the Ballerina announcement. Ballerina is this cloud-native programming language. Metaparticle was announced at the last KubeCon. Why are language-level abstractions so important? I think I would probably generalize my answer and say that to a kind of an amazing degree, people now agree that Kubernetes will be the underlying platform for infrastructure going forward. But there is also an almost unanimous agreement that the current way of deploying applications onto Kubernetes is not going to be the winning one. It's not the optimal one. And so the idea that you need to build the container yourself and then write some YAML and push that up works great. And I mean, and tons of folks depend on it, but it, it doesn't seem optimal to anyone. 
But what there's no agreement on of any kind is, well, what should the winning technology be? And, you know, in some ways, serverless is like a PaaS, a platform as a service. And I think one of the reasons that Heroku and, and Cloud Foundry excited so many people, but didn't necessarily take over the world, is that everyone wants their own PaaS, but they don't necessarily want the same paths as everyone else. And so one way of thinking of Kubernetes and the, the larger ecosystem is it's this amazing toolkit for building paths, but it lets each enterprise or startup or, or even individual kind of customize it the way they want to. So I see uh, Metaparticle and Bowerina and then some others that I would put in that um, same category, perhaps at slightly different tiers, are some work out of Azure, uh, Draft and Brigade, looking at how you uh, develop the sort of closed loop cycle of making a change, pushing it up. There's a project at a company called Dataflow Telepresence that actually got submitted to the CNCF Sandbox and I think is likely going to be coming in. And then some work out of um, Google on Scaffold and Kaneko. And these are, I mean, you actually can look on the interactive landscape, l.cncf.io, and um, take a look at these under the app definition and the CICD area. And I, I definitely am not making any bets on sort of what the winning technology or winning technologies would be. But I just, it seems like an area where there's just tons of innovation going on. Each of these teams are looking at each other and saying, oh, that's a clever idea. Oh, we could implement that. But the bigger picture for me is just that everyone would like to make developers' lives easier but not necessarily put a, a straitjacket on them. And so the fact that it will be Kubernetes underneath and that at the end of the day, you can just build a container and upload some YAML if you want to also gives you that escape hatch. You gave a presentation earlier this week called How Good Is Our Code? Tell me the thesis of this presentation. So the thesis is that when you look at cloud-native computing, which we define as containerization, microservices, and orchestration, that actually the most important aspect of that by far is a different la layer of the architecture. It's continuous integration and CI. And so after, and the talk is up on, will be up on YouTube and you can link to it in the show notes. But the idea after doing a few amusing looks at Juicero and burning trucks and rabbits and some other things is to say, how good is our code not good enough? And so we need to have the tools and processes in place that allow us to continuously update it. And I, I make this point that this interactive landscape, I keep referencing it, the l.cncf.io is, is the example I use in the talk, is 40,000 lines of code. And that's less than 0.1% of the total amount of code that it takes to run it. And that's a huge problem because not only can there be bugs in my own code, but all of those libraries and frameworks that I depend on, Linux, Kubernetes, Node.js, Webpack, Babel, and hundreds of others can have bugs in them as well. And thankfully, there's lots of developers out there fixing the bugs, but I only get to take advantage of that if I have a way of continuously rebuilding, testing, and then redeploying my code. Are there specific areas of the Kubernetes code base that you're concerned about as being more untested or more raw? Uh, that's an interesting question. So Kubernetes has a fantastic infrastructure, and I, I really want to credit Google here, where they have invested uh, huge amounts of resources in the continuous integration, and it's only just now starting to get transitioned to CNCF and some of the other providers. And so they've really... They had it. an internal... See, uh, continuous integration process? 
Uh, not really. I mean, it actually just uses Jenkins and it runs on Google Cloud, but it's just they're running like millions and millions of jobs. And you can just every time, a quick aside, when you do a pull request on Kubernetes, the uh, Kubernetes bot writes into the pull request and says, okay to test. And then any one of hundreds of people can say, okay to test. And then the Kubernetes bot goes off and, and runs that code on, on CI. And, and today that's using uh, Google's cloud resources, but we are trying to transition that and have it have it go through CNCF. But I mean, it's, that's four years now that they've been supporting all that work. But as a quick aside, for, this is the first conference where we had a telepresence robot for people who couldn't be here that you could book 30 minutes remotely on the robot. And so we called it Kubernetes bot. And there's a little tag on it that says, okay to test, but it's, it's rolling around the expo floor. And so the sort of side piece of that, one of the projects that CNCF's invested a ton into and is quite excited about is uh, software conformance. So I'd say that one of the areas that we're particularly interested in is essentially is characterized as the external API. So not just all the internal work that all the tests are are doing, but um, there are a bunch of conformance tests. And uh, we now have 55 vendors that have certified Kubernetes implementations. And what it means to do that is that you use this test harness called Sonobuoy, and then you run the subset of tests that are conformance tests that test the external API. And if you're conformant with all of those, you upload the logs to a GitHub repo, and then we say, yes, you're certified Kubernetes. But today, we, that, those tests are not as thorough as, we, as we'd like them to be. So one of the things that CNCF has been, begun investing in this year with a, uh, an external test development company based in Argentina is to write additional tests. And one of the changes that we were very pleased to see that the SIG architecture group in Kubernetes made is a new requirement that you can add functionality to Kubernetes and it can get through alpha and beta, but to actually become stable, it has to include these conformance tests built into it. And so the way to think of this CNCF investment is we're backfilling some of the technical debt for existing features that didn't have conformance tests with it, but the hole won't get any deeper from here. Any new code that's contributed and, and gets accepted will always include those conformance tests. And hopefully we'll dig our way out of that hole before too long. Conformance testing for those who are unaware, meaning the Kubernetes platform that has that some vendor has developed is interoperable with the other Kubernetes conformant vendor specific Kubernetes de- yeah, deployments. And it connects back to the conversation we were having a second ago about deployment and development platforms, where a really simple way of thinking of it is for one of these platforms like Draft or Scaffold, or and I mean, there's dozens of them. If they run on vanilla Kubernetes that you download from the and, and install, will they run correctly on OpenShift? Will they run on GKE and EKS and all these other platforms? And the, the point of this whole conformance test suite is to say yes, that all of these applications will be compatible with all the certified Kubernetes implementations. When you think about that, 55 vendors that have been able to adopt a conformant standard, that's a pretty amazing feat of diplomacy. And I, that's what I think, like, the CNCF is all about these these feats of diplomacy. I talked to Chris a little bit about this yesterday, and I don't think that's an accident. It seems very deliberate that, as an organization, you have figured out how to maintain diplomacy among all these different organizations, these different open source projects, these developers. 
how have you done that? And or more specifically, how have you avoided the pitfalls that you know, as humans, right? We're fallible to fighting with each other and bickering with each other and taking advantage of each other and backstabbing each other, even if we're talking about open source software. How do you avoid that? So I definitely would say that it's probably harder than it looks. There's just a lot of telephone calls would be the simplest answer, even more than emails or GitHub issues or anything else. I will say that it is the huge strength of having a neutral organization where CNCF is part of the Linux Foundation. We're a nonprofit. There's no stock options. There's no incentives to favor one versus the other. And I think what all of these vendors are looking for is to be treated reasonably. And so we've had good luck, thankfully, on putting together a draft proposal of, of, so it was literally a year ago, it's, it's an amazingly fast process as well, at KubeCon Berlin, I did an early morning meeting right before my keynote, and I was able to get several dozen vendors together and say, hey, here's the program we're thinking of launching, here's our aspirations for it, here's our process for it. Anyone was welcome to participate in it, you didn't have to be a CNCF member. And then we genuinely worked to take people's suggestions and improvements into account. And I, I don't mean to make it out as a, oh, and then we all held hands and such. I mean, there were real disagreements along the way. But it's really one of the most amazing things I've ever been involved in in my career. And so I, I, I'm cr- incredibly grateful to all the other participants of the working group and, and all the vendors that have stood up. And I, I never imagined that it would be 55 implementations and that we would have just the entire field, I think, is the the key point. There's like five or six non-certified Kubernetes out there, and they're actually here at the conference, and I keep bugging them. And it's, there's no lack of conformance. They just haven't quite dedicated the engineering resources to uh, finish the tests and upload them, but they all promise that they will soon. And not to go too deep on, on this, but like, does this have something to do with, like, do you think changing trends in human nature or the way that the tech industry has adopted relative to, I don't know, oil companies or banks or not to knock on oil companies no, or no, banks? I, but I just, I, and I, I don't think there's any, definitely no changes in human nature. I think the biggest thing by far is just the advantage of CNCF coming later after other projects. And so I feel like we get to look at the other at the mistakes that other projects and other standards efforts and such have made and learn from that. And the fact that we do try to be students of history and our aspiration is always to get to go make entirely new mistakes and not replicate those older ones. And so, I mean, I won't uh, name it, but I just happen to know a standards effort that had a set of profiles. And one of the profiles was settings, like, do you have a settings dialog box? And then a bunch of providers came up and said, oh, look, we'll certify to the settings dialog box, and now we can claim that we're conformant with the whole standard, which is awful and a shame. But of course, the organization could have reacted to that and disallowed it and other sorts of things. But the fact that we have seen some different forms of of poor behavior in the past, and that we were able to have both a stick and, and a carrot of saying, hey, this is a huge industry. We think certified Kubernetes is going to be an incredibly important brand, and that uh, you want to be part of it has been really helpful. And so it is the carrot and the stick. It's not about the open source community as a whole having some institutional memory that, well, we've made mistakes in the past that have turned into tragedies of the commons and have led to tons of technical debt and lost business opportunities. Is oh, no, no, I, I think it's that. That's I mean, I, aspect, I, I, okay. I, again, I don't think there's any magic that I or, or people at CNCF, I mean, the, the folks that were 
dealing with tend to have the same institutional memory that we do. I mean, they're very thoughtful, engaged people. And when we can say, hey, if that proposal would lead us down this dead end, they, they tend that to be extremely responsive yeah, to, to screw to us that. over. I mean, I, I will just mention one innovative feature of, of certified Kubernetes that I'm not sure folks are as clear on. I'll, I'll actually do two. One that's particularly neat that, that works for this approach is that in order to get certified, all you need to do is run this test suite. So it's Sonobuie is the test harness, and then all these tests are already built into the repo and upload the results. But the one of the magical things about Kubernetes is that you could lie about that, right? You could just fake your logs, but then any of your users can come along at any point and rerun that test suite. And if those results were different, they could report that. Now, obviously, in most cases, it would just be a bug or some sort of incompatibility and such. And so we have a whole process in place to to deal with that and give them time for adjusting it and, and such. But there is actually work in place to to catch bad actors if that occurred. And there's a sort of distributed uh, crowdsourcing aspect of how that works. As it's That's very different from saying, oh, CNCF is the official testing lab and you have to send your software to us. And of course, I'm old enough to remember mailing CD-ROMs in and other sorts of things. But this is a much more modern approach. Another thing that we were genuinely worried about is someone saying a year ago, oh, well, I'm certified to Kubernetes 1.7, so I'm certified Kubernetes, and then just falling off the release train. And of course, there's so much engineering effort that's going on to add new features, to fix bugs, to improve the platform going forward. So one of the other innovative aspects of the program is that if you continue to release your product at least once a year, so 1.7, 1.11, 1.15, then all of your old certifications remain compliant. And in reality, it would be problematic after too long because the security bugs wouldn't be, security fixes wouldn't be available. But in principle, you could backport security fixes and have much older releases on it. But in order to keep saying, oh, my older 1.7 release is certified Kubernetes, essentially you have to have a 1.11 as well. And if you don't, if you don't release one within a year, then that 1.7 certification goes away. So both of those are, we think, somewhat innovative of features, but it's also trying to learn from the past. To get back to your talk, again, how good is our code? The idea that testing is really important, CICD is really important, even for a project like Kubernetes, or especially for a project like Kubernetes. And one reason for that is because a vulnerability in Kubernetes could be roughly as detrimental to internet infrastructure as a bug in Linux would be. So if we got one of those vulnerabilities, do you have a, a framework in mind for incident response? We do. And, and we already did. There was one called Subpath about two months ago that was a very serious bug. And so the Kubernetes community has a security response team. And really, the CNCF's role is we just fund some private infrastructure for them to communicate with each other. But these are some of the very top security experts from some of the biggest companies and startups around the world, and they get reports on it. And then they go investigate it, and they find patches, and then there's a, a release distribution mechanism. And so that piece, I mean, I, I, I certainly don't want to make it out as, oh, this is perfect and, and can't be improved or anything. But it's something, I mean, there's a lot of companies and a lot of money depending on Kubernetes. And so they take that work very seriously, CNCF's role there is just to facilitate it. I will mention some other work that we've done that's a little newer, where two CNCF projects, uh, CoreDNS and Envoy, 
requested that we fund third-party security audits. And so we used a company, Cure53, and they went off and Core DNS, they found a serious bug that they fixed. But more generally, they had some other suggestions and fixes. All those were taken into account. And uh, the, the reports are public, so you can you can link to them in the show notes. But that's um, some work that we're, we're interested in doing for more of our projects. I mean, security audits, they're only ever, ever a point in time. It's still humans doing it, so there's nothing perfect about it. But we're really thrilled to be able to contribute some of the resources of our members back into those projects and and to help them along. And I will say that overall, the summary of the reports were extremely positive, that they spoke very highly in terms of the quality of the code and the conscientiousness of the design and and did recommend them. We started off talking about serverless. That's one of the working – I believe it's a working group, right? Yeah, it's it's a working group within the CNCF. And another working group that I attended uh, a couple talks on was storage. Yes. Storage is interesting because, well, maybe you could just tell me why why you believe storage is interesting. Storage on Kubernetes is interesting. Sure. So first of all, I'll just say storage on Kubernetes, and I, more generally storage on distributed systems, is hard. Yes. So everyone agrees that stateless apps, of which serverless ones tend to be, are easier to do and stateful ones are are harder. The storage working group has unfortunately been a little contentious and there's been sort of some innovative new startups and then there's a lot of traditional players that are saying, hey, we want to be able to hook our big existing hardware into clusters and, and make that available. Thankfully, they have had some progress. There's a initiative, the Container Storage Interface, which is essentially an API. It's exactly modeled on the Container Network Interface and the Container Runtime Interface. And um, that's now gotten adopted into Kubernetes. I think it's a beta level. But that has been some success on it. And then there is, we do have our first project in CNCF. It's a sandbox-level project called Rook, which currently takes the Ceph distributed file system, which is this decade-old uh, piece, and then hooks it into in a much more Kubernetes-native uh, way. And so I, I think this is one of those areas like developer tools where there's just a ton of innovation going on. I definitely don't expect there to be one solution for storage or for distributed storage, but we're sort of happy to facilitate the the different players in the industry looking at different ways of working together. Do you expect to see entirely new databases and storage styles come up like once these primitives are built within Kubernetes, or do you think people will just start implementing things that cloud providers have? Definitely, we're expecting cloud-native databases. And so three that I'll mention, uh, Vitesse is a new incubating-level project in CNCF, so relatively mature. It comes out of YouTube, where it was in production for seven years. It's a sharding technology for MySQL. It's being used by Slack, being used by a bunch of other really interesting companies and, and is is very serious solution. Two startups that aren't involved in CNCF directly, but that you know we, we have good chats with are uh, Cockroach Labs, which has essentially a Postgres compatible distributed database that's that's based to some degree on Google Spanner and one out of Beijing that I think is very interesting called TIDB, T-I-D-B, that's a MySQL compatible API and a complete distributed one. And so I will give another quick shout out to l.cncf.io. If you go to the database and data warehouse section there, it's a little crazy that I think we're up to 39 entries and they're 
of different levels of maturity and, and scalability and distributed, but there's tons and tons of innovation. In fact, the one last shout out I'll give out is RethinkDB and CNCF helped get that out of chapter 11 and get it relicensed to Apache 2.0. It's now Linux Foundation project, but I know a lot of folks have had a good experience with that, but there are another 36 beyond the ones I mentioned. Hmm. All right. Well, Dan Kahn, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. You too. And uh, look forward to seeing you in Seattle, December 11th to 13th. Yes. Hopefully maybe in Shanghai, uh, November 14th and 15th. Planning on both of those. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Dan. Wow.